Ever wonder what history's most famous and infamous would say if you asked them for their side of the story? Well, here's your chance. I'm Charles Dance, your narrator for Hindsight, an original podcast by Al Jazeera. In this dramatized series based on historical events, we resurrect some of the world's most notable figures. And in the world of football, there's a lot to choose from. In this episode, we meet Lily Parr, one of the greatest players you may have never heard of. She started her football career when she was 14 years old, becoming famous during the brief golden period of women's football in the 1920s. Parr was a teenage phenomenon who shattered perceptions and a couple of bones in a society that was still debating whether football was even considered suitable for a woman. But who was the real Lily Parr? She scored almost a thousand goals over the course of her career. But in hindsight, this chain-smoking woman was so much more than just an exceptional athlete. She was also very much ahead of her time. Hindsight. You may have heard of them. Now it's time you hear from them. Can you hear that, Lasses? That's the roar of 50,000 people, and it's all for us. We were the Dick Care Ladies Football Club, one of the best women's teams in football. We'd played for crowds in thousands before, but nothing like this game in Liverpool. Have you ever seen anything like it? This must be our biggest crowd yet. It was a sold-out match, and still people kept coming. I heard something like 14,000 fans stood outside the gates, hoping to catch a glimpse of us. Normally, when I was on the pitch, I focused on the ball and the other players. But this, I felt like I had to stop for a moment and take it all in. The crowds were so wild. Police had to escort us onto the field. Better to be safe than sorry, they said. 1920s England was under the spell of women's football. Dick Kerr were playing against St Helens at Everton's grounds in the hallowed Goodison Park in Liverpool. Lily Parr, the teenage football phenomenon with a famously ferocious left foot, did not disappoint. Here we go, lasses. I've got it. Heads up. That's it. Strike now. Strike now. Yes! By gum, I helped set up some pretty players that day. We beat St. Helens 4 nothing. It was a bleeding circus. The fans showered us with flowers and the press took about a million pictures. But the number of people in the stands took our breath away. I mean, the men's teams weren't drawing those kinds of crowds. The match was a huge success. But it also marked a fateful day in women's football. Disaster was coming. But Lily Parr didn't know that yet. The teenage phenomenon was just enjoying the moment. Jeez, that's a bit embarrassing. What are they calling me name for? I'm just a lass from Gerard's Bridge. 
I was born on the 26th of April, 1905, in Gerrard's Bridge. It's a neighbourhood in the town of St Helens. You heard of it? Maybe Lancashire will ring a bell for you? Well, in northwest England, that's where. I was the fourth of seven children, so our little raw house felt crowded from the start with so many mouths to feed. But Mum still managed to keep pigs and chickens in our little backyard, so we always had plenty to eat. It also meant we didn't have to depend on Dad's meagre wages from the glass factory, as much as some of the other families in Gerard's Bridge had to. Mum depended on me and my older sister a lot to help out. By the time I was ten, I had a ton of chores. Why do I have to come in early? Why can't the boys help with dinner? I didn't like it very much, but I did my bit. Family was important to us. I was in charge of making the blood pudding every week. It's a bit like sausage. I mixed pig's blood, pig fat and groats in a bucket out back where we kept our animals. Nothing went to waste at our place. Dinner's ready. Our house stank a bit, of all of us. Dad's cigarettes, the pigs and chickens. And Mum was always trying to teach me the things I apparently need to know being a girl and all. Washing the nappies, button sewing. Although I was never sure if I wanted kids of my own in the first place. Gerard's Bridge was the sort of place some people avoided. It was a poor neighbourhood in the mining town of St Helens, about a half-hour drive from Liverpool. Drunks roamed at all hours. Fights were common. Life was hard. If you had a job in St Helens, it was usually at the glass factory, like Pa's father, or at the coal mine. Gerard's Bridge was a rough place. I didn't mind it, though. It was our neighbourhood, if you know what I mean. And I liked being out and about once my chores were done. I've always been more into sport than sewing. I especially like playing rugby and football. My big brothers taught me everything they knew. Hey up, Cocker. Where have you two been? We're meant to have a football match. I started smoking when I was ten. <laughs> that must sound a bit shocking today. But it really was common back then. Cigarettes were a new thing at the time. And we didn't know how bad they were for you. Lots of the neighbourhood boys smoked, and I hung around them a lot. I didn't really sound, move, or act much like a typical girl. I was taller than most, too. I was getting close to 178 centimetres by the time I was 15. Pa had a tendency to drop her head a bit perhaps a subconscious attempt to cover up her height. A sign of the shyness that those who knew her would often talk about. But those same people say she was also a maverick. She walked her own path. I liked my body and what it could do. I had strong legs, and boy, could I ever kick a ball. I practised and practised. Oh, yeah! I've been giving myself more of a run at the ball. That's made a difference. My brothers and I would play football wherever we could find an open spot. I suppose some of the boys wondered what I was all about at first. But then they saw me play. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Another goal for our Lily. <laughs> Men would join in at those games too, at least those who were left behind. 
A whole generation of British men were fighting in the First World War. It upended the order of things. Women took over jobs on the trams and trains, even policing. But their real contribution was in the factories, now refitted to arm the nation for war. Working-class women were called up to become munition workers. Many of those factories organized activities for them, including football. Factory teams started to play one another, for fun and also for wartime causes, like their local regiments or veterans' hospitals. Soon, the factories started paying for football equipment and uniforms, too. I knew about the football teams. We had one in St. Helens. But the most famous one was the Dick Care Ladies. They were the team for the munitions factory up in North Preston. A clerk at the Dick Kerr factory by the name of Alfred Franklin helped put the team together, organizing the training and charity matches. During the war, players toured Northeast England and pulled in thousands of dollars, joining in the national movement to raise money for the war effort. There was this one game that really got a lot of attention. Christmas 1917. It was all over the papers. Hey, lads. Listen to this. 10,000 people witnessed the match. Easily the biggest crowd that has been seen this year at the historic enclosure. The majority, no doubt, went with the object to being amused, but all agree that the end of the quality of football showed was much better than expected. Oh. And, and here's something from the captain, Alice Kell. I have been passionately fond of football since I was a tiny girl. Indeed, I have loved all forms of outdoor sports since my early school days. Jeez. Sounds like me. When the war ended in November 1918, and the men came back from the front, it was widely expected that women would stop playing football and simply slip back into traditional roles from before the war. At Dick Kerr, some of the factory players did exactly that, but not all. Since the factory started building trams and rail cars, there was still enough work to go round for both men and women. So Alfred Franklin kept the play going, too. With the war effort now turning to recovery, there were still plenty of charities to raise money for. All the while, Pa was growing and perfecting that kick of hers. By the time I was 14, I was taller than many of the young lads I was playing with in the alleyways and rough fields around town. Some say she even played for the local women's team from time to time. But it's hard to be sure. What is certain is that women's football and Lily Parr were destined to cross paths. It happened at the beginning of 1920. Just as I was wrapping up a chilly match with my brothers and the other lads. I'm open! <laughs> there you go. Another one from our side. See what happens when you pass the ball? Ha. Oh. Let's call it a day, eh? I'm starving. I was heading home to get some grub when I met the first of the many women who changed my life. Hello there. I've just been watching you play. I'm Alice. Alice Woods. What's your name? I'm Lily Parr. What does that bloody want? Alice Woods was a midfielder for St Helens 
but from time to time she played with Dick Kerr, and they were looking for new players. Well, you could have knocked me down with a feather when she asked if I wanted to play with Dick Kerr for a match. But I stayed calm. <sighs> Sounds all right. Then best ask me mum, then. Come on. Mind the pigs. Don't step in the muck. Here's me dad and me mum. This is Alice Woods. Dick Kerr's come in to ask us to play for the team. Can I play? Will she mind you? God, ma'am! Please! Woods doesn't need to mind me. Yes, Mrs Parr. I'll look after her. And so off we went to Preston. Just for the one match. A proper match at that. It was so different playing for a big crowd. There must have been 3,000 people there. Big difference from the couple dozen that would watch us play at Gerard's Bridge. It took some getting used to, but I just kept my eyes on the ground and, of course, on the ball. You want me on defensive back? All right, then. I must have done something right, because that Dick Cares manager, Alfred Franklin, well, he wanted me and Alice to move to Preston and play for the team permanently. He offered us jobs at the Dick Care machinery factory and everything. Franklin knew his recruiting efforts went against the norms of the time, but he was a bit of a visionary. He saw that women's football had the potential to grow into a major spectator sport right alongside men's football. All women's matches were raising thousands for charity. The women were drawing such big crowds that the National Football Association allowed them to use their pitches and officials. This was a big deal. Up until then... They'd been reserved for the men. I couldn't believe my ears. Playing for Dick Care Ladies and a job. Pop. That's what I called Alfred Franklin. He put me mum's mind at ease by arranging for me to stay with the family of another Dick Care player. That's where I met another Alice. Alice Norris. And Pop said I'd not only be getting me own bed, but my very own room. Never had that before. Pa had a lot of talent, but she didn't have a lot of patience. So when it turned out she'd have to share Alice Norris's room in Preston, well... What the hell is this? It was clear as day I'd be getting my own room. <sighs> now, we won't be needing this bed, nor this chair, nor this. That's how I met Alice Norris, by kicking her out of her own room. Not a great first impression I see now. Even though I was shy most of the time, I did always feel like I knew what I wanted and said so without thinking. It didn't always come out the best way. Now, if you can all push off, I'll be relaxing in my room now. I was a bit bossy with Norris, I guess. She was my age, but we were pretty different. For one thing, her house was much nicer than ours. I admit, I was a bit jealous. But the Norrises were patient with me. Pop had convinced them that I was a diamond in the rough. <laughs> Imagine that. Anyway, Norris and I got on fine in the end. The whole team was pretty tight, 
a tight-knit group living, playing and working together for Dick Kerr. Pass that wrench, will ya? I need to bang that lever into place again. Dick Kerr made machinery, trams and rail, that sort of thing. It was easy enough to work on the line, but a bit boring. And noisy, though it was nice to have a bit of money in my pocket. I was really there for the football. Now, I should explain that we teammates always called each other by our last names. We had to. People weren't too creative in name-giving, so there were loads of Alice's and Lily's. Too confusing. So, I was Pa, and I lived with Norris. I've already told you about Woods. She was the one who came to find me in Gerard's Bridge to play for Dick Care. You know, she could run 100 yards in 12 seconds. And Kel, our captain. She showed me the ins and outs of setting up play. I really looked up to her. And Harris. Little Jenny Harris, our big scorer, our bag of tricks, is what we called her. Now, Dick Care had me playing defence at first. I could really see the plays from back there. I learned proper football strategy real quick. It didn't take long before they put me forward, left wing, so I could score. My first match in that position was up in Clitheroe against another Lancashire team. I scored a hat-trick. Three goals in one game. We had a good time joking about on the pitch too. You think I kick like a mule? Well, knowing how hard a mule kicks, I'm going to take that as a compliment. We played all over Northern England in the summer of 1920. I put the kit down below. Anyone got a cigarette for the ride? Gosh, we had fun on the road. There was this one time we were on the bus, late at night, coming home from a match, when Harris and I needed a toilet stop. So, the driver, he pulled up to the side of the road, next to a low stone wall. Let's jump the wall. Get some privacy. Oh, no. It's a steep hill. Whoa! Next thing I knew, Harris and I were stumbling down a hill in the dark. We totally lost control. It took all my strength to stop. <laughs> but Harris didn't quite manage. <laughs> she went plump right into the lake. Harris, are you all right? I'm all right, Pa. I lost my hat, though. Once I saw she was all right, I headed back for the bus. Oi, thy lot, wake up. Can any of you swim? There's a bloody hat floating about out there. Harris might need a hand too. There was this one game up in Scotland and this girl kept running past me. I got annoyed and pulled her hair to stop. <laughs> made the crowd laugh. But I made the player's mum real angry. The mum thought Norris had done it and started giving her hell after the match. Oi! What's this? What are you yelling at her for? You got the wrong one, missus. It was me. Gonna have a go at me, are ya? I towered over the mother. I had a deep voice too. That shut her up. Lily Parr was a rougher character than the others, both off and on the pitch. She was known to steal the footballs from matches 
and even sold one for profit. She also had her own way of doing things. The players were expected to dress properly for their road trips, and that included hats. While the others wore theirs to the table, she'd take hers off and store it under her chair, like a man might do. I'm not sure I fully realised it at the time. I was lucky being a bit different. My teammates were still expected to act like women off the pitch, find a husband, have kids. I never had to bother about trying to fit into what everyone expected a girl to be, because my family knew me and accepted who I was. Besides, that toughness came in Andy often enough. Oh, like that time he ran into the goalkeeper during practice. You might look good kicking against other women, but you'd never score a goal against me. Go on, give it a try. That kind of thing. The baiting, teasing, the sexism, if you ask me. It happened from time to time. With the men back from war, men's football was gaining ground again. And I suppose some of them didn't like having to share the practice fields with us. Some just couldn't resist the urge to put women in their place. Or try to. Well, all right then. Are you sure you're ready? I gestured for him to stand in goal so that I could take a penalty shot. I placed the ball, took a big run at it and... He stopped the ball, but... Well, he asked for it. It's worth wondering what professional men footballers thought of teams like Dick Kerr. Back then, football association teams paid their male players as much as $12 a week. The women were either not paid or given a token of what the men received. But with each game, the women raised a fortune for charity. They were football heroes, at least for now. The Dick Kerr manager, Alfred Franklin, was always smiling and always turned out respectable in a bow tie. He was also a determined man who now wanted to take British women's football international. A team from France had already been over to play Dick Kerr earlier that year. They played in different cities, but the main event was in London, where Dick Kerr lost 2-1. to one. The media didn't help. Articles described some of their games as hilarious and time-wasting. Newspapers printed caricatures of women running off the pitch to the dressing rooms because there was a mouse on the pitch, or a goalkeeper powdering her nose as the ball went into the net. I didn't care what many of the papers said. We played very well and we went home feeling properly proud of ourselves. And in October 1920, it was Dick Kerr's turn to play in France. Once again, it was all for charity, for war veterans in both countries. Ooh, this was something else. For the first time, I'd be taking the train to London and cross the English Channel to France. But of course, there were restrictions. Pop was always particular about how we dressed. People thought it was a bit naughty. You know, a bunch of women running around in shorts on the field, kicking a ball around. So off the field, we had to dress proper. Dresses, hat and coat, and our hair in a proper style. Woods was especially excited about our clothes for the trip. She were always harping on about a wardrobe, 
Sometimes, bloody hell, she made me go for dress measurements. Woods, is this belt really meant to be this tight? The hat is just stupid. But I forgot how I looked once our train pulled into London. I ain't never seen a city like that. And the people, they look like a picture in a magazine. The women all decked out in feathers and jewels. Even the men sparkled a little. We had one night in London before sailing to France. So we headed out for dinner and dancing. <laughs> nah, I'm not one for a waltz. Let's do the hokey-pokey. Some of the French lasses met up with us in London. We even taught them some of our songs. She's a lassie from Lancashire. Come on, girls, join in. Lancashire. In no time, we were all friends. By gum, we had fun. And the hotel we stayed in in London. I've never seen such wonders. Woods and I spent ages in our room, just turning the water and lights on and off. Who could blame us? We lived in homes with neither. And then, after a very late night of silly shenanigans, we were off to Paris. I don't think I ever even imagined this would be happening to me. How about you, Woods? Paris. I wonder what it'll be like. It was bloody brilliant. The French team took us all around the famous spots. The Church of Notre Dame, the Eiffel Tower, and the Arc de Triomphe. All that. That night, we ate what they called steak frites, which was just really steak and chips. I also learnt my first French word. How do we say it again? Merde. Have I got it right? There was a serious side to our trip, too. France was scarred by the war in a way we and England weren't. The fighting had only been over for two years, so there were still bombed-out buildings and the like. We were there to raise money for veterans, so laying reefs at this place and that was part of the itinerary. But the matches... 20,000 people showed up for the first one in Paris. There was even some England fans in the stands too. We played in North Roubaix. We really did play very good ball that day. Some excellent passes and great plays. And Pa's left kick was a huge draw as well. The tournament was a success for Dick Kerr. They won more often than not. Then came the peak of women's football in England. That match in Liverpool on Boxing Day 1920. With a crowd of 50,000 odd people watching Pa and her teammates. Uh, yeah, she's got it! The Dick Kerr and St. Helens football teams raised nearly $4,000 for Liverpool war charities with that match. A hefty sum back in the day. Councils all over Britain wanted Dick Kerr Ladies Football Club 
to play for their charitable causes, to the point where its manager, Franklin, had to decline invitations. In my first year with the club, I scored 108 goals. The rising popularity was undeniable, and that was a problem. We were playing just about every Saturday all the way through 1921. We had thousands of loyal fans. But that's when things started to go badly for us. And not just at Dick Care, for all women footballers. The success of the Liverpool match annoyed some powerful people, who for a number of reasons, ranging from greed to jealousy to outright misogyny, wanted to raise the red card on women's football for good. Girls, girls, this isn't looking good. Listen to what they wrote now. While women's football does show some talent, one must wonder how long they can keep it up. After all, it's clear that women's physiques are not suited for such rigorous sport. Ha! That writer never saw the last next door run down a runaway pig clearly, wrestle it to the ground with a baby in a belly to boot. <laughs> the story got a good laugh, but Woods barely cracked a smile. I understood. It was serious. But I didn't let that affect my play. I kept scoring like always. In 1921, I helped our team win against the best of Britain. I scored five out of the nine goals. <laughs> 25,000 people watched that match. I figured as long as people were willing to pay some pennies for us to play, we were all right. I was wrong. In December 1921, the pressure was on the governing body of football in the United Kingdom to shut the women's games. So the Football Association, which would go on to become FIFA, made a decision. Woods, come read this. It's getting real. The council feel impelled to express their strong opinion that the game of football is quite unsuitable for females and ought not to be encouraged. Citing complaints from all corners, as well as concerns about tracking all the charitable donations, the association ruled that no women's football matches were to be played on their pitches or allowed to use their officials to run matches. So where are we going to play? Everyone was pretty upset. Kel told the papers that girls had the right to play and we were determined to go on. And Woods? She told reporters she was especially disgusted, considering all that money we raised for charity. The Dick Kerr ladies did not take no for an answer. The club organised matches on any non-FA-affiliated pitch that would take them. They played 67 matches that year to respectable crowds, as many as 7,000 at some matches. But compared to the 50,000 of that game in Liverpool, well, it was all a bit of a blow for women's football. To be honest... As long as I could play, I was happy. And Pop didn't give up finding us places to play. When he told us we were going to the US for a tour, I thought, who cares about the ban? All right, lads. Let's see what you got. Stand tall, lasses. I beat my brothers countless times. We can beat a bunch of yanks too. American women didn't play much footy. They didn't have a team. So when we went on tour in 1922, we played the men. And beat them more often than not. Yep, that's how it's done. 
from the left field. And there's one for you from the right. After one match, the Washington Post named me the best player of the whole game. Said something about me being aggressive. It was a tough tour, though. We stayed in pretty ratty places. And it was clear the Football Association was intent on muscling us out wherever it could. Our Canadian leg was cancelled after the FA extended its ban internationally. But we still had fun. As much fun as we were having, it was getting tougher for the factory to finance the team. Especially as we couldn't play for big crowds anymore and raise a lot of money for charity. The mid-1920s were tough years for British industry, and Dick Kerr was no exception. In 1926, the management broke the news to Alfred Franklin, or Pop, as Pa called him, that the team was to be disbanded, and they'd have to let some of the factory positions go too. Franklin, loyal to the end, quit his job as a clerk at Dick Kerr over the decision. What? I want you to know that the team isn't going to be defeated. I got some plans to continue to play under the name Preston Ladies. And if any of you need another job, I may be able to get you one. I'll be needing a job, Pop. Alfred Franklin's sister was in charge of one of the wards of the Whittingham Mental Hospital near Preston. He helped Pa and a few players get training and jobs there as nurses. I started working there when I was 21. And you know, I was really good at it. Oh, it's all right now, Miss Trudy. That's just Mr. Trent. He gets a bit upset at dinner. Come on, let's get back to your room, shall we? It felt good helping people. That's also where I met Mary. She worked there too, and we hit it off straight away. She was very important to me. Friends for life. Partners, even. I never got married, but I did have Mary. We moved in together into our little house in Preston. As for the team, we didn't play as much as we'd hoped, but the Preston ladies stayed a big part of my life all the way through my 20s. I think I always hoped the ban would be lifted. Lily Parr stuck with the Preston ladies. And with Mary. She kept right on playing, practicing and touring for charity and for fun, despite it all. We kept playing, even during the Second World War. But we couldn't travel for games because of all the fuel shortages. Jeez, that was close. Do you think they put the shops on the high street, Mary? Oh, God. And just listen to the pummeling Liverpool is getting. I was just a kid during the First World War, but a woman in my forties in the second. War made me more grateful than ever for what I had. Turn that radio up, will you, Mary? I'm getting some kicks in out here, but I want to hear the news. Germany has surrendered. <sighs> it's finally over. The boys will come home then. And the girls in the factories, they'll have to go back home again too. We've seen all this before, haven't we, Mary? But the world was changing fast. 
the 1950s saw a British queen ascend to the throne, followed by a young conservative woman by the name of Margaret Thatcher being elected to Parliament, and the retirement of one of the greatest footballers of all time. Or should I say women? One last goal for the last game. What is that now? Got to be over 900 goals on record. But who's counting, eh? They may be captain of the team after the war, but now it was time to stop. I was nearly 50 years old after all. One of my nephews came to live with Mary and me. We were like a family. I stayed close with all my brothers and sisters too, even though we were all spread out. I still worked at the hospital, of course, but without football practice and matches, it was a different life. But I'd still go outside to kick some balls here and there. And besides, I could watch the footy on the telly now. The Preston ladies kept playing, of course, and Alfred Franklin managed them right up until he got sick. I got word that Pop died in 1957, two years after I retired. He was a good man and helped me greatly. The Preston ladies broke up in 1965, another sad day in my older years. But then, in 1971... I don't believe it. Pinnell, Mary, Roy, come see this. The FA has lifted the ban on women's football. Can you believe it? After the many attempts to eliminate it in its first golden age, women's football was emerging from 50 years in the dark. The result of rising popularity, demand, and perhaps the fact that the women's movement was gaining ground. I wonder what would have happened, Mary. If that ban never happened. Wondering what if. It's a part of getting older, as Lily Parr was experiencing as she got closer to her 70th birthday. <coughs> I was beginning to feel poorly. There was a tightness in my chest. I'd retired from the hospital, thank goodness. But the coughing was still slowing me down. I had happy thoughts to keep me going. I'd still smile in wonder at the idea of me, a lass from Gerrard's Bridge, playing for tens of thousands of people at home and abroad. Who would have thought? Lily Parr died of cancer in 1978. It wasn't until 2002 that she was inducted into the Football Hall of Fame. Today, a bronze statue of the trailblazer stands at the National Football Museum in Manchester. Parr's left foot in position for one of her famous kicks. Hers is the only statue of a woman among more than a hundred men. What would Lily Parr have to say about that? It shouldn't be just me up there, that's for sure. And not because it's not fair, but because the likes of Alice Kell and Jenny Harris were much better than me. I did have that powerful left foot, but I learned from much better players. 
the Dick Care Ladies were great, not because of me, but because we were a great team. Since her death, Pa has become an inspiration to many. She was never vocal about her sexuality, but between 2007 and 2009, the Lily Parr Exhibition Trophy was played between football teams made up of members of the queer community, in tribute to Parr and the Dick Kerr's ladies. On the pitch, Lily Parr was an extraordinary player, and her longevity in the game makes her stand out from the others. Despite the ban in 1921, she played for another 30 years, perhaps for smaller crowds and less recognition, but she and women's football survived. The FA would go on to become FIFA, football's world governing body. It now calls women's football the single biggest growth opportunity in the world of football today. Hindsight is narrated by me, Charles Dance. This series was produced by Sout Podcasts. Their team is producer and editor Tala Elisa, production coordinator Rana Dawood, editor and fact checker Omar Faris, associate producer Basant Samhunt, sound design by Taisir Kabani, assembly sound editing by Yazan Kawas. This episode is written by Morgan Waters. Research by Rama Sabanek. Interview by Morgan Waters. Fact-checking by Tarek Ayub. Special thanks to Gail Newsom for speaking to us about the character. Lily Parr is played by Jessica Ellis. Extra voices played by Chris Harris and Sia Kiwa. Football commentary is played by Stephen Brunton. Voice coaching by Zayn Gamma. Recording by Revolution Recording and LBS Manchester Limited. Additional research and fact-checking by Al Jazeera and Amma Boateng. Script editing by Danilo Hawaleshka. Joe DeFrias is the executive producer of Special Projects. Juan Carlos Van Meek is Al Jazeera's director of digital innovation and programming. Hindsight is a historical drama podcast. All dramatized scenes and dialogue are inspired by historical events, old interviews, and in some cases, new conversations with people close to the subject.